BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. In his new book, The Madman Theory, CNN anchor and chief national security correspondent Jim Shuto writes that Trump's erratic and volatile approach to foreign policy has unnerved advisors, enemies, and allies. We'll talk to Shuto about what Trump's lasting legacy on America's place in the world will be, and we'll get his take on developing international news stories, including escalating U.S.-China tensions over Hong Kong and the coronavirus and Russia's bounties program, through which it paid Taliban-linked militants to kill American service members in Afghanistan. Join us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. In his new book, The Madman Theory, CNN anchor and chief national security correspondent Jim Shuto highlights how President Trump's unpredictable behavior, including threats to meet North Korea with fire and fury and to pull the U.S. out of NATO and NAFTA, have unnerved enemies and allies alike. Shudo shows how Trump's volatility has led advisors to hesitate in giving the president military options because they feared he could start a war. We'll talk with Jim Shudo about the lasting imprint Trump has left on the world after four years in office, and we'll get his take on how that will shape America's place in the world. And Jim Shudo, welcome to the program. Good to have you. Thanks so much for having me. It's really great to be on out there. Well, good to have you. And uh, let's begin with what I think is really the major thesis in your book. We go perhaps the recent memory of fire and fury in those words used about North Korea, maybe to scare uh, <clears throat> the leaders of uh, North Korea, one leader really, Kim Jong-un, it turned into kind of a love affair after that. But this is a, a sort of a, a facade in many ways. It goes back to President Nixon. And let's get the genealogy on this with Vietnam. Yes. Yeah, so, so Nixon famously uh, propagated, you know, claimed to develop and then use the madman theory, even called it that. His advisors called it that in interactions with North Vietnam. He, he communicated to Henry Kissinger, his national security advisor, to pass on to the North Vietnamese, and by the way, there are recorded White House conversations about this, to say, in effect, I'm just crazy enough to order a nuclear strike on North Vietnam in the midst of negotiations to gain leverage in those negotiations. And Henry Kissinger did it. He, he, he said, in effect, you know, the boss is just that crazy, hoping that it would move them. Now, uh, it didn't work. Uh, North Korea, North Vietnam, rather, held firm, and, and we know how the those negotiations in the war ended for the U.S., uh, but Nixon, H.R. Haldeman, and others went on to, to own it and say, this was our madman theory, it can work. Now, Trump, 50 years later, uh, brings in his own madman theory, but with a couple of differences. One, uh, it, it's largely accidental. It's, it's not so much a strategy, but a product of a president who makes decisions on the fly by the seat of his pants uh, without consulting his advisors, often contradicting his advisors or U.S. policy, often contradicting you know, the intelligence and other information that's been presented to him. Uh, the other piece of it, which is new and different and, and somewhat alarming, is that his madman, as it were, he unleashes it not just on adversaries, but on friends, on allies, Canada, Mexico, uh, NATO allies, and even his own staff to the point where and for this book, to make it clear, I, I spoke only to folks who worked for President Trump, current and former officials, who tell numerous instances, numerous stories where he surprised them 
things like tweeting out a withdrawal from Syria, you know. Uh, so, so Trump's madman, he unleashes on everyone, right? Uh, and, and sometimes, frankly, by accident rather than, than intent. And one has to ask, because it's caused such a disruption in the world order and U.S. alliances uh, have gone into chaos, you have to ask whether they'll be restored. And that's a question that looms over your whole book. But the reality is that uh, he's doing things unpredictably, as you said, and often impetuously without any briefings and just on his own gut, as he describes it. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I speak one of the people I speak to for the book is Susan Gordon. She was the, the, the number two intelligence official in the country, the principal uh, deputy director of national intelligence. She was going to go on to the senior role, but uh, President Trump forced her out, didn't see her as a enough of a loyalist. She briefed him face-to-face -face numerous times. Uh, and she describes numerous instances where the president flat out dismisses intelligence and insists, in effect, that he knows better. And she's very circumspect on this. She said, listen, he's the president. He's the commander in chief. He has the right to do that. And she says, I, I don't mind when people question my opinion or analysis. But, but she says the alarming instances is where, is where he questions or dismisses, frankly, stuff that we know, right? St stuff that is established by not, not just a guess as to what, say, Russia is up to, but things we know well the president insisting either via overconfidence or, frankly, his perception of his own interests, uh, that I know the facts. You don't. Wasn't it Susan and, Gordon, though, who said uh, his whole uh, operation was based on, in terms of geopolitics, based on don't be a patsy? It is. Well, this is the thing. And to, to your point, I asked everybody I interviewed for the book to kind of give me, okay, give me Trump's uh, foreign policy here. Give me in a line, you know, like what it is. Um, and, and her line was, don't be a patsy. Now, which is fair. And you can see that in interactions with, with China, for instance, in particular, very consistently standing up to them on a whole host of things. The, the, the trouble is that uh, that, it, that is often not informed by the facts as we know them, right? And, and the other um, commonality I heard from virtually everyone who worked for him is, is a transactionalism that what are you doing for me? And if you can scratch my back, perhaps I can scratch yours. And, and in China, for instance, you see, we've seen instances of this, right? Even in the midst of, you know, a, a largely tough relationship getting tougher, there were times when, it, for instance, when Trump was willing to say, it's okay for you to incarcerate 1 million Muslims in Northwestern China, as we know they're doing that's your problem. And by the way, can you help me in my election by buying agricultural products in, in, uh, you know, in swing states? This is the thing. With Trump, everything is on the table. Isn't it also, Jim, uh, since you mentioned China in this context, uh, pretty transparent that he's moving along uh, a political tra trajectory here, I mean, for his own political interests? Uh, I mean, there are concerns the United States ought to have with Hong Kong and with uh, the South China Sea and what China's doing there and so forth. But it would appear that right now he's trying to look tougher than Joe Biden, who has seemed uh, or is being portrayed by him as being too weak on China. Well, that's a thing. And, and, and that is a, a concern that even folks in his administration and outside it who support his tougher stance on China is what is the what is the actual strategy here? Right. And this is something lacking uh, with interactions with virtually every country across the board. What is the strategy and the end game? With China, yes, you're being tough today, and there are a lot of instances where that is very much deserved and justified. Question is, where does it lead you, right? Right now, what's happening with China is, is you're kind of spiraling in this sort of escalation here. What's the off-ramp, right? What is the quid pro quo, or what is the exchange you can make so that both sides get a little of what they want, right? And, and the concern is that because of, of his constant focus on the political benefits, particularly as it relates to him, that this is all about electioneering in November 2020. And then what, what, what are the consequences of that you can't prevent, right? You know, are, are we on a path to war? You know, it's interesting in the book, some of the president's advisors, I, I spoke to Steve Bannon as well, speak openly about the possibility of war with China. And, and as you, you hear that, you almost hear them saying they'd welcome it, which is a remarkable reality to to consider going forward. 
Talking to Jim Shuto, and he is chief national security correspondent and anchor with CNN and uh, is the author of uh, a new book called The Madman Theory, Trump Takes on the World, with a very, uh, shall we say, compelling cover of Trump doing a pinata with uh, a blindfold on, uh, almost again to suggest that a lot of these things that he does uh, are done blindly. And you uh, talked to a dozen sources. You found out he doesn't really uh, read briefing material in many cases. There's a very telling uh, passage where you write about H.L. McMaster's, H.R. McMaster's, talking about he had to go down to three bullet points, and then uh, Trump only read two, so he wasn't reading even the two. doesn't read briefings, ignores them, dismisses them, disagrees with them, says he knows more than briefers. He often begins a sentence by, I know more about this than well, any experts on just about anything. And uh, it, it shows, it shows in, in so many things that are unpredictable. Um, the, the subtitle grabbed me too, because uh, Trump takes on the world, but he doesn't take on the autocrats. Uh, the invasion of Syria seemed to be to placate Erdogan uh, and was almost inexplicable because he went against our great allies, the Kurds. But there are so many things like that. Why, why take troops out of Germany? Well, the uh, answer that he gives is because it's cost saving, because we're spending too much money. We're getting we're the patsies again. Yeah. The, the, a consistent theme of his presidency, right, is deference to despots. Uh, you mentioned Putin, you mentioned Erdogan, she at times, uh, Kim Jong-un, and greater deference to them than to our own allies. Just look at his language, right? The kinds of words he will say about Putin, the defenses that he will make for their decisions that he will not for Germany, right? The leader of Germany or even Canada, right? You know, our, our, closest, our closest ally, you, you can argue for, for decades. Why is that? I asked everyone in this book to explain to me the deference in particular to Vladimir Putin and the best explanation they could come up with, setting aside for a moment suspicions, and there were real suspicions about what vulnerabilities he calculates that he has with Vladimir Putin, but setting that aside, their best explanation is that he simply admires Vladimir Putin, that he admires the power he has, that he shares Putin's nihilistic view of the world, right? That no one's better than anyone else. And that's in Trump's public comments. You, you remember the Bill O'Reilly interview early in his term. O'Reilly said to him, but Putin's a killer. And he said, well, are we that great? And repeated again just a couple of weeks ago with regard to Russia and selling arms to the Taliban, um, where the president said, well, we sold arms to the Taliban in the 80s too. You know, making this equivalence between the U.S. and Russia. Now, the trouble is, it goes further than that, beyond just an admiration, uh, is, is a sense that Putin holds a certain sway or influence over President Trump. And I'm not talking about P-tapes. I'm talking about influence in the way he sees the world. One of Trump's most senior advisors on Russia said to me in these terms that Putin is Trump's honey trap. Remarkable thing to hear that Putin, in a, you know, the term honey trap, right? That's the kind of beautiful woman you, you, you use to sort of get someone to change sides. That's a remarkable analysis to hear from someone who served him at the highest levels. Intelligence officials told me as well that there were genuine concerns that, that Russia was trying, and their word, not mine, trying to recruit Trump via an influence operation, not meeting him in an alley and paying him money, but just influencing his opinions over time. And you see some of this in the president's publicly expressed opinions. His senior advisors told me that one of the president's sources of his, his hostility to European leaders, I'm talking about Western European leaders, America's allies, is Vladimir Putin. And in those many phone calls, they share a sort of hostility or animosity towards them. That's remarkable to have a sitting U.S. president be influenced by someone who is by the way, trying to undermine your country, right? I mean, that, that's the view across the board, Republican, Democrat of Russia's intentions here. It's a remarkable view to hear from inside his own administration. It's also remarkable given the fact that so much of the GOP was dedicated to a kind of cold warriorship for so many years. But I'm interested in another remarkable side of this, to use your word, and that is that the president has ignored what has come out of our own intelligence agencies. He did it in Helsinki. He said, Putin told me he didn't interfere in our election, so I believe him. Didn't matter what Bob Mueller said. And uh, 
go up to the present in terms of what has gone on in Afghanistan where there were bounties on American soldiers. Again, he said, I wasn't briefed, and everybody says he was briefed. Uh, it's just so counterintuitive to any kind of uh, sensibility that we might attribute to the way things are supposed to go on in terms of diplomacy. But I want to get to something else in this that is sort of part of your book, and that is the failure of American foreign policy before Trump. Uh, Peter Navarro, who you spoke with also, points out that there were many failures, and so many of those failures, I guess, are now attributed to deep state and the like. But it is a real sort of sense that we have here that uh, many of the Trump supporters see these kinds of things as being what they like, what they applaud. It's, I, make a, I made a real effort here, right, to, to, to speak to folks who work for him who are both critics and loyalists, right? You mentioned Navarro, Steve Bannon, people who still are true believers, to get at what drives this right. We know that a big portion of Trump's uh, view of the world and his decisions is self-interest. It's, 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 in, it's on the record, um, even his interest in, in, in winning this election. But there is also a politics behind it. And, and Bannon explains this, and Navarro as well, that you, know, you do have an establishment view of the world that, that transcended Democrats and Republicans. Um, and, and, and Navarro makes this point. When you look at the record of those decisions over the last 20, 30 years, whether it regards North Korea or, or China, et cetera, or the invasion of Iraq, uh, can you claim great successes there. And, and, and in many instances, no. In fact, you can claim great failures. Uh, and, and Bannon makes the point that many of Trump's supporters got beaten up on both ends of the policy. They got beaten up on globalization. They, 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 they lost their jobs as, as uh, trade deals helped. It's not the only reason, but helped some of those jobs go overseas. And then they had to send their kids to wars in the Middle East. And they're saying, what did I get? out of that old view of the world. I'm going to throw my lot in with someone who's promising to blow it all up. That's the politics behind it. Now, and that's why when you look at Trump's madman theory approach to the world, where some people, even his own advisors, see folly and great damage, others continue to see wisdom or, or at least some sort of writing of the balance. Now, the trouble is, let's set the politics aside for a second. If you look at any measure of success Virtually across the board, Trump's approach has failed. North Korea, after all the fire and fury and then the love affair, it has more nuclear weapons today than it had four years ago. Iran, he got out of a deal that perhaps wasn't perfect, but Iran is closer to a bomb today than it was when it was under the deal. Um, so and Russia at, has more nuclear well, weapons than ever before, and North Korea has more missiles than ever before. Yes, right? and Russia, by the way, is more aggressive. You know, this idea of no one's been tougher on Russia than Trump, first of all, easily disproven, and I do it, you know, point by point in the book, is that, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Russia is more aggressive today than it was four years ago on a whole host of fronts in terms of uh, military action, in terms of, you know, if you look at uh, action, their action in Syria and Libya, military action abroad, they're contesting U.S. military assets around the world, you know, flybys of U.S. warplanes and ships and so on. And but excuse me, way, Jim, uh, Trump points out, though, that there are still strong sanctions against Russia. That's his that's the card that he keeps playing. He does. Now, to be fair, look at the record. His hand was forced on those sanctions. Right. Uh, uh, they, they were forced by large bi bipartisan votes, which were veto proof. And this administration, there are a number of instances where they slow rolled those sanctions and didn't do it until they were forced to. And by the way, Look at Ukraine. You know, the, the, the other part of the Ukraine story is Russia, right? Not only did you leave an ally in the lurch to try to get dirt on Biden, but you undercut an ally, Ukraine, which was fighting a war with Russia. You know, you have to look at the whole picture. And it is true. And, and I give him credit for this in, in my previous books that Trump has given, for instance, Cyber Command greater ability to, to push back at Russian cyber attacks. Um, but then let's look at the current Russian interference in the upcoming election. President still will not call out Russia. And in fact, like so many things, just claims it's not happening. It's another hoax. So what do you make of uh, the recent explosion in Beirut and uh, Trump saying, I, I was told it was an attack. Uh, again, 
All of the channels that have been open diplomatically or out of state, and there are far fewer now, both in state and defense, than there were previous to Trump, to put it mildly. But uh, they've been saying this wasn't an attack. This was probably Hezbollah gathering some explosives that blew up or that, something along those lines. But uh, he, he comes out and says something like that to the press, and they jump all over it, and suddenly you know, it could blow up uh, in the Middle East easily because of that. Well, it's classic Trump in many ways, in that he speaks uh, out of hand a lot, right, uh, to, to put it nicely. It's very possible that in the briefing or his first briefing early on, someone says, well, looks like it was an explosion from stuff stored there, but we haven't eliminated that it was an attack, right? And the president latches onto that and, and spits it out and not realizing that that has consequences if you're still holding that out as the commander in chief. Now, if you watched uh, Esper this weekend, try to clean it up. Um, he, he, he sort of tells the story that way, as in, well, early on, folks were talking about a whole lot of possibilities. Um, and that, to me, is actually the more disturbing part of it, because by now, we know that the president often either speaks out of hand or, frankly, says things that just aren't true, aren't based in fact. But it's when you see the government try to retroactively justify the comment uh, th that it becomes more concerning, right? Because uh, you, you're enabling, in effect, that, that behavior by, by the president. Talking with Jim Shuto, and he's chief national security correspondent and anchor with CNN, and his new book is called The Madman Theory, Trump Takes on the World. I'd like to hear from you, our listeners, on this, and any questions or comments you have are certainly welcome, and you can be interactive with this conversation by giving us a call now to our toll-free number. I invite you to do that. The number to call is 866-733-6786. Please feel free to be part of the program. Again, you can join us by calling in at 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email. Any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. And here's an email from Douglas who says, when will Trump and by proxy the U.S. start suffering consequences from the policies that oscillate between despotism and willful ignorance? When will the EU, for example, really stand up to Trump? When will China take some short-term pain for the long-term gain of damaging the U.S.'s place in the world? Jim Shudo. It's a great question. I mean, in effect, those consequences are already happening. Right? Let's talk about Europe for a second. Um, when you hear a Merkel or a Macron say, we can no longer rely on the U.S. as our guarantor of safety and, and freedom, that, that's quite an indictment of, of this president, but also the state of that relationship. Um, they know they can't do it alone. But their takeaway is they can no longer rely on the U.S. And that, for all of us, um, it's a shame. It's a shame to hear that. And that's, that's a, real, it's a real consequence. It, it's not a consequence that President Trump himself seems to feel, right? Because he still views this purely from a very uh, zero-sum game perspective. And that's another consistent description I got from folks who work for him, particularly when it comes to economics. Cannot see beyond the... The, the dollar bottom line in any relationship. Uh, and if he perceives that, and, and it is true, that, that we spend more on our defense than the Europeans do, therefore they owe us. And it was remarkable. One of his advisors said to me, and this is, this is one of the more remarkable comments I heard, is that in a way he's more hostile to U.S. allies than he is to adversaries because from his view is we're giving them something. We're giving allies something, military, forces, protection, etc. Therefore, by not giving what he wants, then they're worse, right? They owe us more. Coming um, up on a break, but when we return, we'll take uh, some calls. Uh, a number of listeners want to talk with you and have questions for you. And again, you can join us not only toll free at 866-733-6786 with Jim Shuto, but you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. You're listening to Forum on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking to Jim Shuto, Chief National Security Correspondent and anchor for CNN. And 
author of a new book called The Madman Theory, Trump Takes on the World. Jim, I know you're probably familiar with the fact that a number of psychiatrists uh, had a meeting at Yale. Uh, we did a discussion of this on this program and decided that Trump perhaps really is a madman. They even came up with a, uh, a diagnosis that is not in the books, but they uh, called him a malignant solipsist. And um, solipsism is a, is a good operative word in some ways because to some extent a lot of your book probes how he sees things through his own subjectivity and his own subjectivity. Again, we keep talking about his gut and transactional, uh, what's in it for me, all this, what's in it for the United States, maybe in a secondary position to what's in it for me. It's hard to determine sometimes. He, but in fact, the president does see himself as the United States of America, doesn't he? He doesn't see much of a distinction between who he is and his position and his office and the rest of us, the country. Yeah, it's it's l'état c'est moi. I mean, it, one of my chapters is named that, you know, based on his interactions with, with Ukraine, an instance of, of exactly that. I did ask everyone I interviewed for this book if they have any doubts about his mental sharpness. Is he mad? No one said they believed he was clinically mad, but they do describe him almost uniformly as someone who sees everything one through his own interests and makes no distinction right, between the national interest and his own, uh, and two, sees everything through his own view of the world, right? And, and that is, on the one side, he believes his opinion is right, his analysis, his gut is right. But the more worrisome side of this, as I was saying a couple minutes ago, is that he believes his own facts. And that's an alarming thing for the leader of a democracy in the 21st century. It's alarming also when the facts are not based on science, but just the contrary. I'm going to read a couple of uh, comments that are coming in, then I'll go to calls. Uh, Noel writes, the way Trump dismisses briefings in favor of his gut feeling dovetails closely with Mary Trump's observations of his psychological state. Another listener writes, uh, by the way, Mary Trump, his niece, uh, is a clinical psychologist. Another listener writes, my fear is that Trump is setting the U.S. up for a major conflict in an attempt to stay in power, in particular Taiwan or China. I cannot put anything past this president. And before I go to callers, and there are a lot of people who want to talk to you by phone here, Jim, I just want to zero in on that because it's an important key to your book and I think understanding your book early on his military advisors did not want to necessarily give him options. I mean, they were trying to... Yep. I mean, that's where we get to the madman theory on another level. Yeah. He is so flip uh, with uh, the use of U.S. military power and his judgment that in the tensest time, it's not the only time it happened, but this is one, uh, of 2017, late 2017, uh, tensions with North Korea, he was seeking military options, and the Pentagon, military officials, senior diplomats were hesitant to give them to him because they were concerned he was going to use them and get the U.S. into a bloody war with North Korea. You may remember discussion at the time of a quote-unquote bloody nose strike on North Korea. The fact is no one in the Pentagon believes such a thing existed because from North Korea's perspective, even a quote-unquote limited strike would be perceived as the beginning of a decapitation strike and that they would respond by raining hellfire down on Seoul, which they have the capability of doing. And the estimates from US Intel at the time was that this was gonna cost tens of thousands of lives. So without calculus and knowing that this was a president who made decisions on the fly, his own military advisors held back. And that's remarkable. His own advisors don't trust his judgment. There is a kind of uh, contradictory sense, though, that one gets, uh, to put it mildly, but uh, certainly uh, in terms of the madman theory, because uh, Trump did use missile strike on Syria, as we know, back in 2017, when uh, Syria was using chemical weaponry, but uh, said he would against Iran and then pulled back on it against Iran. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that inconsistency seems to uh, give a whole different nuance to your theory, doesn't it? Yeah, the, well, here's the thing, in the whole chapter on Iran, too, the, the back and forth, which his, again, another instance of his own advisors couldn't keep up with because they couldn't figure out what the judgment was that was going to lead to military action. There were repeated instances of uh, Iranian aggression in the region, including, as you mentioned, shooting down a $200 million drone uh, to the point where the planes were in the air, ready to drop their bombs, and the, and the president pulled it back. I tell the story about how that followed a conversation with Tucker Carlson, <laughs> another phenomenon of, of informal advisors in his ears. Um, uh, 
And then later, Iran attacks Saudi oil facilities, no response. So then when we get to Qasem Soleimani, arguably the riskiest of the strikes, he does do that one. And now, to, to be fair, and I write about this in the book, there is, benefit is the right word, or, or you know, justification for that. Soleimani was a bad guy responsible for killing some 600 U.S. soldiers in Iraq by the weapons they supplied the insurgency there. The question was what was next, right? And, and what would you do if you ended up in a kind of tit-for-tat ex, uh, escalation? And that's what his advisors can't articulate. They can't articulate what the strategy is because- There is no strategy. He doesn't have one. <laughs> he doesn't have one. That's the, that's the raw fact. Yeah. I've got a caller on, and uh, I'm always delighted when young people call on the program. Sahara is 16 years old, and Sahara, join us. Welcome to the program. Great. Great. Hi, my name is actually Sahana. But um, anyways, my question is about policy and more so how you would try to target those loyal Trump supporters and try to help them see your side in your book and if that will ever happen. Hmm. Hi, Sahana. Thank you for calling. Um, it's a great question. I, I, listen, one thing I, I try to do with this book and I try to do in my reporting every day, right, is to understand, right? Understand not just the folks who see the folly in this, but the folks who see the wisdom in it, and, and not just his advisors, but the people who support him. And I suppose what I try to do is explain where they're coming from, right? And, and that's part of the thing I was talking about earlier, that, right? That the, and, and Steve Bannon talks about this. He, you know, he refers to them as the deplorables. He said, you know, they've gotten screwed. Uh, and and you, you get it. You can see why they believe that. Um, so then understand why they see these moves, like pulling troops kind of summarily out of Syria or, or other things that Trump is doing, why they see that he's looking out for them. But then, then my approach is, okay, I, I get where you support where he's coming from. So then the question is, it's sort of like the, are you better off now than you were four years ago question, like, is the country actually safer from, say, North Korea today than it was four years ago, or Russia, or Iran? And when you look at the record, it's not. You know, simplest measures. They got more nukes. North Korea's got more nukes. Iran is closer to a nuke. You know, uh, Russia is more aggressive. So that's the way I try to, uh, try to approach it so that it's a, you know, it's kind of a before and after, right? So that there's kind of a hard measure and listen, whether people buy it or not, um, I don't know. But but that's, I feel like, the the best approach I could take as a journalist. Did it uh, present any kind of challenge to all of those you spoke to that uh, the president has what we can describe as a deep and profound and unshakable enmity against CNN? <laughs> um, here's the thing. Yeah, it's it's real. And there were folks who wouldn't talk to me because of that. But there are many who are. And I I maintain open channels with the administration. And, uh, and I'm often granted interviews and access that, that I, you know, I'm glad to have because I can't, I don't think any of us could do our job well unless we're, we're still able to challenge them. Um, but on the other hand, I also end up on the kind of pointy end of that too, because, you know, I, I don't want to share here, but I'm certainly not the only one who, who gets his share of uh, personal attacks and threats, et cetera which are frankly enabled by, by the administration's approach to all this and deeming us the enemy of the people and, and so on. And that, you know, listen, my feelings about that are pretty strong. I think it's unjustified and dangerous, uh, but it's a fact of life operating in this environment. And, and, and my, my other reaction to it is, you know, screw it. I'm going to keep doing my job. And let me thank Sahara for her call and go right to another caller. That's Dave in San Francisco. Dave, join us. Welcome. Yeah, um, I was thinking actually of quoting uh, Noam Chomsky, who I've been reading a lot lately, and by way of asking a question, um, I don't think uh, Trump is so much mad as John Gotti. He's basically like a mafia chieftain, but it, but he's not in control. This would be Chomsky's argument, and he's being controlled by oligarchs, a loose, confeder loose confederation of oligarchs internationally that are propping this kind of clown president up. So that that would be my question. I mean, do you – I haven't read your book. Um, I, these, these discussions are very interesting, but do you believe uh, any of that line? 
I do. First of all, thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Um, if you do me the honor of reading it, I'd, I'd appreciate that. And I'll take your critiques. Um, there's a paper tiger quality to this president, right? A, a perception of his own power and an advertising of his own power to his supporters. Again, that's not supported by the record. If you look at the way the strong men that he so admires deal with him, whether it's an Erdogan of Turkey or a Putin of Russia or a Kim Jong-un, they've all taken advantage of him, right? Kim Jong-un took advantage of the last four years to expand his nuclear program. While, while Trump was advertising all these face-to-face -face meetings, he was building more nukes. He took advantage of Trump. Trump's the weak one in that relationship. Putin is doing whatever he wants, wherever he wants in, in general, uh, and certainly at home and in Europe, and in many parts of this country is perceived as the stronger, the stronger one in that relationship and Erdogan too. I mean, I tell the story about how, you know, that the president twice withdrew U.S. forces from Turkey after phone calls with Erdogan. No discussion with his uh, team about what he was seeking or how he was going to get out. But Erdogan just kind of convinced him on the phone. I'll take care of this. And Trump got off the phone and said, fine, we're pulling up. Surprising. I think he also he likes Duterte of the Philippines, too. Uh, we could add yeah. that name to the list. Uh, yep. I'm wondering. And by the way, Duterte, uh, to your point, he's moving closer to China and all this. So what did yeah. the U.S. get for that friendship? Losing a treaty, well, not lo or, you know, weakening a treaty alliance in, in Asia. Now, as I said earlier, early on, uh, President Trump was certainly trying to uh, establish a relationship with China that now seems to be going another way. And I think uh, a lot of that hinges on politics. It's interesting, isn't it, that we get this report from uh, uh, Evanian uh, about William Evanian, the uh, National Counterintelligence Security Center head, that Russia is trying to, again, toy with our election, but so is China and Iran on the other side against Trump? I found that just the sort of uh, skeptical meter in my, in my, in my gut. <laughs> Something went off on that, that meter, yeah. Something went off. It was a little convenient. I mean, here's the thing. The headline from that is that four years later, Russia is interfering again to benefit Trump. That's the headline. Remember, that's what happened in 2016. By the way, the president and Republicans repeatedly tried to undermine the second half of that, which was that they were doing so to help Trump, although that's the intelligence community's assessment. So lo and behold, four years later, they're still doing it and still to help Trump. And by the way, four years later, the president still won't call them out on it. That's, that's the headline. Now, the fact that attached on. We do know that China, North Korea, and Iran all attempt to interfere in this, uh, in this election, and, and that's been going on for some time. How do, how do we know that they want Trump to lose, right? We, we know it's in the public record how we know Russia wants Trump to win, just based purely on the kind of inf interference it did. In 2016, it focused its efforts on undermining Hillary Clinton, stealing the DNC emails, stealing the John Podesta emails, spitting them all out. This time around, Russia's focusing its attention on Joe Biden. You know, it's, in, it's obvious what Russia's doing. How do we make the same judgment? I, I don't doubt that China, Russia have their, China and Iran have their own preferences, but Russia's is damn clear. There's no doubts about it. And it's just in a different category. And here's another caller joining us, Barbara. Welcome. You're on the air. Uh, in San Francisco, thank you. Uh, I am very concerned about the narcissist, narcissistic tendencies uh, of the president, as well as his tendencies toward psychopathy and sociopathy. Yes, I have a background and experience in psychology. Um, he does have nihilistic tendencies. He likes to break things, like U.S. institutions and agencies. And here I'm getting to the main point. He has access to nuclear launching. Hmm. And what, what is being done if it's not classified and you know about it? What, is being, what measures are being taken to protect us from accidental or deliberate launch of a nuclear device hmm. which could destroy the whole world? Uh, Barbara, it's a very important question, and I'd like to hear what Jim Shudo has to say about the president and the big button, as he once described it, compared to Kim Jong-un's button. Yep. So... We don't know for sure, right? We, we don't know for sure what's being done behind the scenes regarding nuclear attack. We, we can get indications about how, how his senior officials are concerned about his judgment and what steps they are willing to take 
in other uses of military force. We know, for instance, uh, like I was saying earlier, with North Korea, that in late 2017, they hesitated to give them military options because they were afraid it's going to take us into a war there. Granted, a conventional one, but a conventional war in and around the border with North and South Korea means tens of thousands of people dead. So we know they hesitated there. We know that in the tense moments with Iran in 2019, I tell the story of this in the book as well, that they were so concerned about the president's decision-making that they communicated to their Iranian counterparts. This is U.S. officials communicating to Iranian counterparts that they don't know what the president would do next to help, they hoped, in avoiding miscalculation or escalation to war. In Syria, twice the president attempted to withdraw U.S. forces from there, something that the military thought was a bad idea. And I tell the story in the book about how they worked around the president, in effect, to keep some forces on the ground. And by the way, they remain there. And to, one, hope the president looked the other way, or two, hope they, they convinced the president. I mean, they developed this idea that we're just protecting the oil fields there to keep them on the ground. So we know uh, that the military tries to mold him, right, so he doesn't, to, to avoid his worst inclinations. On the nuclear front, you just hope the same thing happens. Now, I should say, to Trump's credit, he will often express in public and in private his opposition to the use of nuclear weapons. He'll say, it's horrible. You know, I, he always talks about his uncle, who was a nuclear scientist, etc. And he talks about this big idea with Russia of reducing nuclear weapons. So you hope that that is the motivating factor for him. And we bring another caller aboard here. Shabazz joins us. Shabazz, good morning. Yeah, uh, this is Shabazz. Um, I wanted to uh, make a comment. Um, in talking about uh, the president's um, uh, uh, being under the influence of other dictators, I, I think he sees himself as one of the a member of the gang. He's been taken advantage of by them, of course. You know, you know, Putin is a ex KGB agent, and everybody else is more experienced in government than he is. So they're taking advantage of his weaknesses. But he sees himself as their equal, and he's clearly not. Uh, so I think he wants to be uh, a dictator just like them. Uh, and also, I, I, I don't see any reason any sensible reason why we have a policy that a sitting president cannot be indicted, especially when he's clearly trying to uh, uh, interfere with the voting and the democratic process of our country. And nobody has been able to explain to us yet why they don't bring charges against him, especially all they say is that uh, they don't want to interfere with the day-to-day -day operation of the country. Well, that's why you got a vice president. Shabazz, I thank you for that call. And uh, want to respond to that, Jim Shuto? I will. You know, here's the thing. There are, there, there's lots of evidence that the president is, uh, is a paper tiger, right? That, that he exaggerates his own power and is far less powerful than he imagines, you know, not just in terms of his interactions with a Putin or an Erdogan or a Kim, but even with his exercise of power at home. Uh, and there are checks that we've seen. That said, a U.S. president has a lot of power. And I have to tell you, I, I watched the upcoming election with, 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 with deep concern, given what the president is showing himself, showing himself in public as willing to do. You know, it's interesting. There's this, if you saw it, there's an election in uh, Belarus in Europe yesterday, you know, former Soviet Republic that has all the hallmarks of a, a manufactured election. You know, 80%, of course, for the the, the pro-Russian government uh, leader and all the attacks they did. They tried to restrict voting. Uh, they tried to shut down internet discord, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, as you watch that, you say, wait a second, a lot of those tactics our own president is using here. D discredit the system, say that it's rigged, you know, divide the country, divide and rule, suppress the vote where you can, slow down mail-in voting. Um, and, and distort the truth, you know, so that here we have a president using what are tactics copied from authoritarian leaders now uh, to influence our own election. And we, we have a lot of advantages over a lot of other countries in that this can be exposed and you have members of Congress that are fighting it and 
there are going to be court challenges, et cetera. That said, the fact that that's being attempted by those sorts of tactics are being attempted by an American president in our country in, in the year 2020 is uh, it's disturbing, you know, and it's happening before our eyes. It's also credible, as some argue, that the president wants to stay in power because he's afraid even if Mike Pence would uh, grant him some kind of immunity, that he's not going to escape, for example, state courts in New York, especially the Southern District of New York. Listen, we know, based on my own colleagues covering the White House and, and this president, that he has deep concern about his legal liabilities when he leaves office. Um, how much that's influencing his efforts right now beyond just a singular desire to be elected, we, we don't know. But we know that he talks about it a lot with people close to him uh, and even some of his public comments, right? You could always tell what he's concerned about based on what he attacks, you know? If he's concerned about the election, he attacks the election as rigged. If, if he's concerned about legal proceedings, he will attack uh, the Manhattan district attorney. Um, and if he's worried about, say, Republican oppo opposition to him, he'll attack those Republicans. See his attacks on Ben Sass today for questioning his executive actions. So he, he's transparent in that sense. Let me bring another caller on, and that's uh, Christina joining us next. Christina, welcome. You're on the air. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, I'm coming from the view that I don't think that Trump really wants to be president anymore. I think he's tired. I think he's a I think he's a hostage of his own celebrity. I don't think he wants to be perceived as being a loser. Um, nobody. I'm an administrative assistant, and I've, I've observed a lot of executives, and a lot of times when they screw up the way Trump has screwed up, sometimes it's like a it's like a passive aggressive desire that people just quit giving them that work. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just listen to your comments on the air. Oh, right, we thank you for those comments, Christine and Jim Shudo. You know, you're not the only one to ask that question. Does he really want it? And I wonder if it's possible that he doesn't necessarily want the job, but he wants to win, right? That the responsibility is the job. And this is, again, something that's been in his public comments that, that he, you know, it's not as fun as he thought, right? He's had to give up a lot in terms of business, privacy, et cetera but would dread the prospect of being a rare one-term president uh, and, and, and so on. So I wonder if it's, if, if it's possible both are true, right? Not so excited about the responsibilities of the job, but would dread the prospect of losing. Would especially dread losing to Joe Biden, one can argue. And here's a question from Barbara, which uh, uh, perhaps deserves more time than we have. But she says, how would you advise a President Biden to restore allies' trust in the United States? A, a clearest, quickest statement that we stand by the alliance, stand by our allies, and stand by you know, the, the key element of the alliance, right, is, is mutual defense. And that's something the president has questioned in public. And, and listen, you know, an alliance is, is uh, you know, forget what's on paper. It's all about what people perceive it to be. And if the allies doubt your commitment, more importantly, adversaries do. If Russia sees chinks in the armor, uh, then that, that alliance is no longer. Uh, so, the next president will have to very clearly and quickly demonstrate that. The trouble is how much is reclaimable, right? Because some of this does lasting damage. Because if one president, one U.S. president can raise questions about the alliance and the next one draws them back, what's the next president going to do? Are we so certain America's devices, po divisive politics won't elect someone similar again? I think about that with the Iran nuclear deal, right? What's to guarantee, and you can imagine your allies or adversaries, you know, China and Russia win that deal too, to say, okay, you're signing this agreement, Mr. President or Mrs. Pre president, Madam President. Um, how do I know that in four years when there's another president, they won't flip it around? You know, some of these precedents are difficult to, uh, to repair, you know, uh, confidence easily, easily lost, uh, more difficult to gain. Apropos of that, I was interested in reading over the weekend that Secretary of State Pompeo has condemned the shadow war in the Ukraine and also been certainly highly critical of Putin and Crimea. And uh, I know he has political ambitions. It's pretty transparent of his own. He's an old Cold Warrior, though. And uh, 
one wonders if there are kind of cracks in the unpredictable analysis that you've done here from within. I mean, you mentioned Ben Sass before, for example. Everybody's been waiting for some kind of uh, revolution within the Republican Party against Trump, or at least some of the cracks uh, from the lockstep uh, formations that one sees. But those have not taken place, and yet uh, other cracks continue to appear. Small ones, yeah. Uh, you know, it, and, and as their perception of the president's political fortunes might be changing, too, there's always that self-interest, too. Um, but I would say this. Who does Putin listen to, Pompeo or Trump? I would say Trump. Uh, who does she, who do Erdogan? They may hear the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee say this will not stand, but when the commander-in-chief says the opposite, they probably listen to what he says more than, than what a Pompeo or a Sass says. Let's try to get Timothy on here with a little time left. Timothy, please go ahead. Welcome. But John, but John Bolton said that he and Pompeo and foreign leader Netanyahu blocked President Trump from meeting and discussing things with Mr. Zarif. Mm-hmm. It is there a are, book, yeah. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, oh, and there are instances, as I recount in my book as well, where his own advisors stopped things from happening or attempted to stop things from happening. Again, like I said, you know, starting a war with North Korea in 2017 or withdrawing all troops from Syria. So there are, there are ways that, that folks have figured out to undercut, but... Forgive me, they can rely on a short attention span in many instances. Right? They can. And actually, it's interesting. That was in Syria. That was one of their explicit strategies. They're like, well, let's take out a couple hundred guys and let's see if the president's attention turned. And it did for 10 months. So, uh, yes, that works to a point. What's changed over time is that one by one, those folks willing to stand up have disappeared. And the folks around him more and more are ones who will not challenge more sick events and uh jim shudo good to have you with us thank you so much for joining us thank you i really enjoyed the conversation and all the questions best to all my friends out in san francisco that's jim shuto and again his book is called the madman theory trump takes on the world and for all of us here at kqed public radio i thank you for listening and being a part of the program uh this hour mina kim will be with you the hour ahead stay safe i'm michael krasny Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.